the line drives me crazy, but on the <laughs> other hand, it, it really helps me define classic oil wars because that's what I mean. Right. Um, the idea that you go into another country and you grab its oil resources. And right. what I'm saying is, actually, we don't do that. And right. no countries do that. Welcome to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Andrew Holland. You know, in every community, there are certain truths that are just taken for granted. And in the foreign policy community, one of them is that natural resources lead to conflict. Oil, in particular, leads to wars. Dr. Emily Meyerding's new book, The Oil Wars Myth, takes on this sacred cow. She's an assistant professor for national security affairs at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. Her research and teaching focuses on international and interstate conflict and cooperation over energy resources and climate change. I, too, have been working in these areas for years, so you'll see we have a lot to talk about. Ultimately, though, I don't think her findings undercut the long consensus that oil does go hand-in-hand with conflict. After all, the absence of state-to-state war does not imply peace. I should note that the views Dr. Meyerding gives here are hers alone and don't reflect those of her employer or of the Department of Defense. And with that, let's get into the show. Dr. Emily Meyerding, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, Well, Emily, you recently published uh, a book called The Oil Wars Myth, Petroleum and the Causes of International Conflict. Um, So let's get right into it. Why do you say oil wars are a myth? So... I say, first of all, I should say I'm speaking about a particular kind of oil war. I'm thinking about the types of oil wars that that we most often envision when we think of oil wars. Uh, Two countries fighting for control over oil resources. And I call these classic oil wars. And my book argues that we all believe in these conflicts. And in fact, when I started this project, I believed in these conflicts. But when I actually went in and did the research and looked at international armed conflicts from 1912 to 2010, I found that these classic oil wars actually don't happen, Um, that historically countries have not fought to obtain oil resources. Hmm. Interesting. So so I guess this kind of gets right into the definition then is an important thing Mm -hmm. because war does come into play, or, or uh, oil does come into play in war. It's, it's an important, it's a strategic commodity. You write in your book how, uh, you know, Clemenceau wrote to Wilson about how oil is the lifeblood of armies and, and all that sort of stuff, right? So um, how do you define an oil war, a classic oil war, as you, as you say? So I say that a classic oil war is a severe armed conflict in which countries are fighting to obtain oil resources. Uh, That could be one country going in and trying to grab another country's oil resources, or it could be two or more countries fighting for control over contested oil resources. Hmm. Uh, And so so why is this myth easy to buy into? Why why are you, you kind of pushing against the tide here? Um, I, I, so I spent a lot of time thinking about this. If yeah. these things don't happen, why do we believe in them? Um, yeah. And what I came up with was the idea that it's easy to believe in classic oil wars 
because these conflicts intersect with two long-standing narratives that we have about the causes of conflict. And in one of these narratives, countries fight over resources because of resource needs. Uh, they need certain kinds of resources like water or food in order to survive. And so they fight over territories with these resources in order to obtain those resources and to guarantee their survival. Uh, and I call this the Mad Max myth. Uh, basically, desperate people, desperate countries are fighting to try to, uh, to just keep on going. The great um, old Mel Gibson movies. Uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, uh, the, you know, in that case, it's gasoline. But yeah. these narratives have been, I mean, they go back to Thomas Malthus. They go back to Darwin, this idea that uh, people, countries fight for scarce resources because they desperately need them. Um, but then the and second I really, I really liked, I'll interrupt you here. I really liked how you, you talked about how this is a per pervasive cultural idea. And you listed all these movies and all these TV shows and, and all this sort of stuff. People write about this, even if it's not necessarily happening in the real world. So it's like it, it pervades our ideas about how oil works. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Oil, other resources as well. And it just it's one of those go-to narratives that we have. And because it's yeah. so ingrained, we don't actually really stop to think, does this really happen? Right. Um, so that's the first narrative. Uh, yeah. And then the second narrative says that people fight out of greed. Uh, there are certain resources, gold, diamonds, uh, that are, can make you fabulously wealthy. Mm. Uh, and so people fight because they want to be rich. Mm -hmm. uh, and I call this the El Dorado myth. Uh, and so in this one, people are fighting because they, they want more resources than they need because they just, they basically want to get rich. Right. Um, and so we have these two narratives, um, the Mad Max myth and the El Dorado myth. And right. one says that people fight out of need and one says they fight out of greed. And because we believe both of these myths, uh, because we're so saturated in both of these narratives and oil wars fit both, Mm -hmm. uh, countries need oil in order to survive, to fuel their militaries, to fuel their economies, and countries greedily want oil wealth, it's very easy to believe in these conflicts because they fit our stories. Right, right. And, and, and it's almost so pervasive culturally that, that you believe it. I mean, heck, I'm sure you've heard this. I mean, the, the president goes around saying, well, we should have taken the oil when we, uh, you know, went into Iraq, you know. Uh, the, the line drives me crazy, but on the <laughs> other hand, it, it really helps me define classic oil wars because that's what I mean. Right. Um, the idea that you go into another country and you grab its oil resources. And right. what I'm saying is, actually, we don't do that. And right. no countries do that. Yeah. And so you talk about this, you know, your book is purely about oil and oil wars. Um, but it fits for many other resources as well. I've, I've, I've talked with people and, and I've written some about uh, water resources and there's this idea that there's going to be water wars and, and you know, whiskey's for drinking, water's for fighting. Uh, but it, it's, again, it's not actually true. Riparian states almost never fight over water. There's this great database that goes back thousands of years finding, you know, who who fights over water and it's like once and it was some obscure war back in you know ancient babylon over fighting over water and it it's you know these things kind of promote um uh, 
kind of low-level conflict, but not necessarily out-and-out out war, you know? Power dynamics still come into play, right? And, and you can say that, that the same thing about oil as well. And I, I do, I, so I love, I, it's Aaron Wolf's data. I yeah, love this yeah. data set. I, I very much <laughs> feel that this book is, is sort of the oil equivalent of that analysis. Uh -huh. um, and that I actually also find that on about two dozen occasions from, again, 1912 to 2010, countries have engaged in what I call oil spats. Okay. These are these minor militarized incidents. One country is trying to explore for oil in contested waters. Another country mm -hmm. chases away the oil rig. Mm -hmm. um, we've heard about this in Venezuela and Guyana. We've heard about it yeah. in the South China Sea. Um, we've heard about it in the Eastern Mediterranean. And these things happen, but they never escalate. Um, it's this minor militarized incident. The countries, everyone gets up in arms in the domestic public in both countries, but then the leaders shut it down. Um, mm. And so they never morph into these larger conflicts. And I think that's because leaders are ultimately aware that fighting major wars for oil doesn't pay. Right, right. And, you know, and I mean, that gets to a, a bigger question, I think, too, of, you know, war does fighting wars for anything pay in the late 20th century, 21st century? You know, the there's there's not a lot of evidence of, you know, a war actually being a good thing after the fact in recent history. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> and I would say if you take, you know, if you take all consideration, everything into consideration, wars don't pay. But what I'm arguing in the book is that actually, even if you're just looking at it from an oil standpoint, they don't pay. Um, right. That oil is, is, of course, super valuable. It's valuable for militaries. It's valuable for economies. It's valuable for the countries that earn money from oil revenue. Um, but at the same time, all of this value has led us to overlook the fact that there are huge obstacles to mm -hmm. seizing foreign oil resources. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the book, I, I break them down into four different types of costs. Mm -hmm. And I say that because of all of these costs, ultimately fighting major conflicts for oil is just not worth the effort, regardless of the other costs. Mm -hmm. It's not really, uh, I forget who, who wrote this, but it, it, it was, it's not a plunderable commodity, right? It's not like it's really easy it's not this, this old idea that you could go in, raid the castle and steal the gold and, and go back like the Vikings or something like that. It's, yeah, it's more, it's more like agriculture where it's like, you're in for the long haul. Uh, <laughs> oil projects take a long time. It takes a lot of money to, time to make back your, your money. So you've got to invade the country. You have right. to occupy the country. You have to deal with whatever international third party, international community resistance that you get for invading the country. Uh, and you have to deal with the fact that oil companies are not keen to invest in unstable territory. So if you need foreign investment, good luck with that. Right. <laughs> um, so that, that's really interesting. So, so you, you have this idea where it's, it's, it's value, it, it's a strategic commodity, it's a valuable commodity, but, some, but it doesn't lead to violence. And, and you, you kind of lay out the why. The why. Um, so if it doesn't lead to wars and is a strategic commodity, um, I, I've, I've struggled a little bit with this question of, is it good for a country to have oil reserves? You know, and this is a different academic body of, of uh, research and everything. Um, 
but you know that this goes into the the, the resource curse mm-hmm. uh, body of research and everything where uh, you know it may not be good there's there's a lot of examples of countries getting wealthy but not necessarily the people getting wealthy and sometimes the countries go in the opposite direction you mentioned Venezuela and Guyana before you know Venezuela obviously is under economic collapse right now um, the, it, it, it it's not so I guess my question is um, does it do, do, do your findings find that it's you know would it be better to for a country to have oil and you know protect it or is it better to just to to not have it uh or something like that that's an interesting idea would it be better if these countries just said sure take the oil yeah yeah exactly Um, we'll give it to you (laughs) unlikely but intriguing um so as as you've mentioned the book doesn't look at conflicts within countries it looks at conflicts between countries um but um and the whole resource curse literature, it's so controversial. You know, initially people said, yes, there's a big resource curse and there's been a lot of pushback against that. And now there's this idea of a conditional resource curse where if you have certain institutional structures or certain timing, then it's okay. If you don't have those, it's not. Right. Um, Basically, if you're Norway, you'll be fine. But if you're- Everyone's favorite case. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're um, not, then, you know, you're in trouble. But I think the, the part, because I've, I've obviously thought about this some, and I do think that my book's main finding, which is that oil really isn't a sufficient cause of international conflict, that that component does also apply to some degree in, within countries with oil resources. Um, that when we take a country like Nigeria, for example, the conflict in the Niger Delta is partly about oil, but it's also about ethnic and political marginalization. Right. Um, and so I think it's this idea that oil on its own doesn't have as much power as we think it does, um, that it's usually not enough to cause economic problems or political problems or armed conflict. It's usually the intersection of oil with some kinds of other factors. Right. Um, and usually that's political mismanagement or, or economic mismanagement within countries. But um, but I think we we it get into some risky territory when we ascribe too much causal power to oil. Yeah. So, so I think that that's an important sort of segue into, I want to talk a couple through a couple of the, the uh, um, case studies that you talk about in the book. And, uh, and the first one, uh, which I've, I've often thought about uh, is, you know, us and Japan in the Pacific. And, you know, the, the, the attack on Pearl Harbor as an attack to, to stop the U.S. Navy from interfering with uh, the Japanese invasion of uh, Indonesia to, to get the oil, to get all, all of the, the oil resources there that they needed to be able to continue to persecute their war in the Pacific and in China. And so you find that this, uh, that, that this was not a classic oil war because there, there was a war already ongoing? That's, my argument is that what happened in, um, in the Netherlands and, or the Dutch East Indies yeah. was an oil campaign um, that happened in the context of an existing war. Mm-hmm. And I think understandably Americans think about World War II in the Pacific and we think, okay, it starts with Pearl Harbor. Right. But from the Japanese perspective, this war had started a lot earlier. 
Um, the war with China, uh, the second Sino-Japanese war, you could say it started in 1937, you could say it started in 1931, um, but Japan has been involved in this conflict in China for, um, for a few, at minimum three years, probably more like a decade, and they're desperate for oil resources. They need the oil to continue um, prosecuting this war with China, and they're finding it increasingly difficult to get access to those oil resources mm -hmm. uh, because the United States does not want them in China. But the Japanese leadership feels like they can't leave China without some benefits after spending so much time and blood and money there. And so it gets into this sort of escalating situation where the more that Japan pushes, the more the United States pushes back. And mm -hmm. so by 1940, the U.S. is restricting um, Japanese imports of aviation gasoline, restricting steel imports. And the Japanese are trying to square the circle of how do we not give up everything in China, but also not get into a war with the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, and ultimately, they fail, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and they say, OK, we have tried everything. We've tried getting oil concessions in Romania and Mexico. We have tried to develop our own synthetic oil resources. We have tried trade agreements with the Dutch East Indies. None of it has worked. We really don't think we can win a war with the US, but that's all that's on the table right now. So we're gonna give it a shot. It's the invasion of the Dutch East Indies is basically a Hail Mary. Right. Um, and so yes, they do launch this campaign to get oil after the United States cuts off all oil shipments to Japan but it's part of a much larger conflict that did not start for oil reasons. And I argue that in the absence of that larger conflict, Japan would not have tried to seize foreign oil. Yeah, so that's interesting. Uh, I, I often sometimes think about kind of the, the contrary idea of, you know, if, if the Japanese had just gone ahead and, you know, invaded Indonesia and even invaded the Philippines, the American colony in the Philippines, without attacking the fleet at Pearl Harbor, um, could that have, you know, kind of not galvanized the American public like it did? And, it, you know, because Americans don't usually want to go fight long, drawn out, bloody wars for, you know, people far away. Uh, and it, it could have could have changed that the course of, of the whole world war, I think. That's a great question. I know that the Japanese um, in war games in 1940, they, they figured, they realized that attacking the Dutch East Indies would bring the United States into the conflict, but I don't know if they were factoring in an attack on Pearl Harbor or not. Yeah. Um, but it is, it's a great counterfactual. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, and, and maybe it would have brought them in with the Navy that they existed, but they wouldn't have have seen the whole whole scale massive mobilization of the the American uh, the American war machine to to fight and crush the, the entire Japanese empire. Uh, it's an interesting counterfactual, I think. Um, but people could write books about that. Uh, I want to go into into the one the, that you found that is the one example that could actually fit a classic oil war model, and this is a country that. Uh, for better and worse, and, and I think a lot for worse, uh, the U.S. has been involved with for 30 years, uh, and that's, that's Iraq. The, the Iraq-Kuwait War, uh, the Kuwait invasion of 1990, and then, you know, the ensuing Gulf War, and, and you know, just America's long-term 
engagement in, in Iraq and Mesopotamia and the whole Persian Gulf. Um, I think it's, uh, it's incontrovertible that the United States was drawn into the Persian Gulf and into the Middle East because of oil. Its strategic importance uh, is, uh, you know, you can't argue with it. And the United States cared about it, still cares about it some, um, because that's where the oil is, the massive oil reserves of, of the region. So, so anyway, I'll, I'll let you say, is Saddam Hussein, 1990, says, I got to get this oil. Tell me what, what happens now. So, so the traditional narrative is that Saddam Hussein, this is very much a greedy resource conflict narrative. Mm -hmm. Saddam Hussein greedily wants to seize his neighbor Kuwait's oil resources. He's complained about Kuwait slant drilling into the Rumaila oil field. He's going in for the oil. Okay. Uh, so, so that's the greedy narrative. Um, right. There's also a needy narrative, which says Saddam, that Iraq is suffering um, economically. It hasn't recovered from the Iran-Iraq war. Um, Saddam desperately needs more oil revenue, but Kuwait and the UAE are exceeding their OPEC production quotas. This is driving the price of oil down and Saddam needs to bring the price of oil back up so he invades Kuwait. Um, so we have a greedy narrative and a needy narrative. Mm -hmm. And what I'm saying is the needy one provides part of the explanation, but it's incomplete. Uh, and the piece that it's missing is the fact that most of Saddam's actions were driven primarily by fear of the United States. Hmm. Um, that I actually looked at documents from the Iraqi regime that were seized during the US invasion in 2003. And what comes through very clearly is that Saddam and the Iraqi leadership did not trust the US. Um, ever since in particular, well, since the 1970s, but especially since the Iran-Contra scandal, they thought that the United States was out to get them. Uh, to try to overthrow regime and to the regime and prevent Iraq from becoming a regional power. And Saddam thought that with the end of the Cold War, the United States would now have a free hand in the Persian Gulf. And sure. he believed that all of the things that the, U that the UAE and Kuwait were doing were actually being driven by the US, uh, that this was part of an imperialist scheme to keep Iraq out of power and to overthrow Saddam uh, by denying him oil revenue. So he, first of all, tried to um, correct the situation diplomatically. He talked to all of the Arab states repeatedly. He talked to the United States repeatedly. Um, and finally basically concluded that the only way to try to change the situation was to attack Kuwait. Um, with the hope that maybe the United States wouldn't respond, maybe he could get the prices up and maybe he'd stay in power. Um, but so I just have a very, a very different interpretation, for example, of the infamous meeting with U.S. Ambassador April Glaspie. Mm -hmm. Everyone said, she gave the green light to Saddam and just said, basically, we're not concerned with your affairs with Kuwait. Go ahead and invade. That's the interpretation he got. Right. The way I interpret that meeting is that Saddam was trying to get some reassurance from the United States that the US was not actually out to get him and overthrow him. And he didn't get it. And the next day, um, in fact, the US announces naval maneuvers with the UAE and yeah. um, OPEC says we might just abandon our production quotas entirely. And he says, okay, this is, 
there's a quote, uh, it's better to die standing than in your house um, attacked. And so in a weird way, it's a very similar dynamic to what was going on with Japan uh, in the invasion of the Dutch East Indies. It's these desperate leaders that say, see, basically dying on their feet is better than just slowly collapsing. Well, and it's, uh, uh, with Saddam, it's almost his, his paranoia, you know, that, that yeah. we came to, to understand and learn a lot more about in the ensuing decades. You know, it, it's, it's of course not really based in fact, you know, it, the United States was, it was like the lowest thing in, in the U.S. foreign policy agenda with everything going on in Europe and the Soviet Union collapse and everything like that. It's not like we were plotting some overthrow of Saddam Hussein, who had been not our ally, but the one we supported in the Iran-Iraq war, which had just finished. So, <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, this is, it's, it's an example of how starting from a wrong assumption can lead you yeah. in a very wrong direction. Yeah. Um, that there's a lot of internal logic and consistency to his decision-making, yeah. but they start from the wrong fundamental assumption right? Um, and lead to some totally unacceptable international behavior. Right. And of course, the, this paranoia then leads to the very thing that he most was, was fearing, which was that the United States then did spend another decade and a half planning for and then executing regime change against him uh, after the fact. But let's be clear, Saddam believed that he won that war. He won Operation really? Desert Storm because well, he, stayed, he stayed in power. The goal wasn't to seize Kuwait. The goal wasn't to occupy Kuwait and take its oil resources. The goal was to stay in power. And because Saddam was not overthrown as a result, even after confronting the United States in what he called the mother of all battles, right. he saw it as a win which decimated his army, you know, completely uh, got rid of everything. But, but yeah, if, if your only goal is to stay in power, then uh, that's, that's interesting. Didn't end well for him in, in the end, no. though. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, let's play this out further then, too. Um, 2003, uh, U.S. invades Iraq. Uh, and of course... Nobody, so I was, I was working in Congress at the time, uh, and my, uh, my boss, was, she was a House member and, and honestly didn't know too much about uh, international relations. So here, here I am, I'm, I'm the uh, you know, 23-year-old uh, young staff assistant, legislative correspondent, and I, and I got assigned to, to write the letter, the constituent letter that says, why I'm, I'm voting for the Iraq war. And, you know, so this goes through multiple drafts as, as of course, you know, it would, but, um, you know, the basic case as laid out by, you know, Dick Cheney and, and others uh, was that, uh, you know, that, that Iraq was either involved, at, was either involved in 9-11 or would become the next 9-11 if we just let it go. And there was weapons of mass destruction. And so most of, most of our stuff was, I, you know, this was a, a New Jersey, New York metro area member of Congress. And so, and we lost uh, constituents to, in 9-11. And so it, our letter and the rationale for it was don't let 9-11 happen again. 
and we wrote nothing about oil or anything like that. And, and no, no policymaker at, at that time, I can convincingly say no policymaker at that time was thinking about this as about oil. But of course, some people would be after the fact or even at the time were saying, you know, going back to the old chant of no blood for oil and this is about oil. And then that narrative grew over time. Um, what do you think? Is, is there any pervasive idea that the United States did this because of oil or was oil a factor in, in the war? So in the book, I basically say, I can say what this conflict wasn't. Right. I'm a little less confident about what it was. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say it is not a classic oil war. The United States was not going in to grab direct control over Iraqi oil resources. All of the mm -hmm. planning documents indicate that the U.S. had every intention of getting out quick. Mm -hmm. And part of that was because of the recognition that it would be impossible to develop the country's oil resources while there was an occupying power. No oil companies would make um, agreements with an occupier because they would know that they would just potentially be overturned. Right. Um, so from an oil standpoint, it made absolutely zero sense to go into Iraq and seize its oil resources. Uh, I also reject the idea that it was done to get U.S. oil companies control specifically. Mm -hmm. um, so not about seizing the oil resources for the United States, not about seizing them for U.S. oil companies. The, the oil-related explanation that seems more plausible, although like I said, I cannot say one way or another whether this is accurate, was the idea that in the early 2000s, this seems like so long ago now, we were concerned about running out of oil. Right. Um, not today's problem. Right. Um, <laughs> so we're concerned, there's increasing concern that the world is going to be running short of oil supplies at some point in the relatively near future. And obviously Iraq sits on a huge amount of oil, but under sanctions, the Iraqis couldn't develop those oil resources. Well, you don't want to lift sanctions until you get Saddam out of power, because if Saddam's in power, he uses that oil revenue to build weapons of mass destruction right. and become a security threat, right. is how this logic goes. If you remove Saddam from power, you can lift international sanctions, you can develop those oil resources and have enough oil to um, not face peak oil, um, peak oil supplies. So... It's, it's a much more elaborate oil-related argument. Um, I don't know if it's true or not. I right. didn't find enough information to say yes or no. Um, but to me, that's the only plausible oil explanation. Interesting. Well, and uh, let me ask you too. I mean, I, I mentioned this when we led into talking about Iraq at all. I mean, the United States cares about the Persian Gulf, has cared about the Persian Gulf, and has had a military commitment of some sort in the Persian Gulf to protect oil since the, the inception of the Carter Doctrine, 1979, 1980, when we were afraid that the Soviets were gonna come through Afghanistan into Iran, seize those, those oil fields. And, and you know, the Carter Doctrine is that you know, the United States will prevent any other country from uh, having a hegemonic power over oil production there. Um, so we would protect open, open trade and open sea lanes and, and that sort of stuff. Um, and that kind of led into this, this cycle where we were there. And so therefore we had to respond to things like the Iraq war and, and everything. 
and and we were there because of oil. You know, other countries uh, develop weapons of mass destruction, North Korea, uh, and we don't respond in the same way as we did against Saddam Hussein. Um, and is is the just the presence of oil in that strategically important region? Are we hyper aware of that, or is that you know something? Else? So I I would say that oil concerns, oil access concerns, have shaped U.S. foreign policy. Mm -hmm. um, they have certainly contributed to the U.S. presence in the Persian Gulf. Um, they have. Um, President, the first President Bush was very explicit about the fact that the United States was responding to Iraq's invasion of Kuwait for partly oil reasons, mm -hmm. uh, in order to protect the security of global oil supplies. Um, the, so the, the, certainly oil has been a factor in the United States' interests, but I think there's a degree of habit as well uh, at this point, that this is sort of what we do, um, mm -hmm. is to have a presence and to protect the oil and we're really more protecting oil transportation um, than trade. we are. We're not we're trying to get the oil sea lanes. Yeah, yeah, we're protecting sea lanes, free and open trade. Exactly. So, yeah. um, so I think at this point, it's it's part of what the United States does, whether that's as a global public good or as habits. Um, but I think that because it has become partly more habitual, we're maybe not always making the best decisions about how to effectively deploy our military power. Interesting. Um, really interesting. We, we always like to kind of, as we end these, these discussions, to, to think, uh, think into the future. ASP, you know, we like to say that we don't talk about the uh, headlines of today, but what are the headlines of tomorrow going to be? And so everybody in kind of the strategic affairs community now is talking about great power competition, right? Uh, GPC. So, and, and that's code for China and code for Russia, and then a little bit uh, on the smaller great power competition with places like North Korea and Iran and stuff like that. But the big ones are Russia and China. And um, I, I, I do worry, actually, actually a bit about great power competition and oil, because this does go to a different model of international relations than the one that your data set takes place under mostly, it's mostly Cold War, post-Cold War era, you know, going back, both of which, post-Cold War era, you know, unilateral American power can, can kind of squash down wars before they become. Cold War, both sides had incentives to squash down wars into kind of regional things. If you go to this great power competition, I think of kind of naturally like the, the late 19th century, the imperialist phase where, you know, European powers were going around the world, actually seizing resource hubs to build, you know, to, to, to you know, kind of imperial resource and, and take out the resources and bring them home. Uh, you know, think of Belgium and the Congo and, and, uh, and this sort of stuff, uh, you know, and that does worry me that, you know, the Chinese looking at, at some of their efforts in Africa, where it is really about, you know, go where, where oil is and try and bring it to, to, to China. Um, I wonder if, if kind of going into the model, uh, you know, that, that you put together, do you think it's still going to hold into the future? Uh, 
I think that it's going to hold provided that we do not restrict international oil markets. Um, okay. That, I mean, one of the interesting things with doing this research project was discovering that there had never been that imperial era for oil. Hmm. Uh, that from the time it became a strategic resource in 1912, that great powers didn't do these kinds of resource grabs, uh, even in the more protectionist uh, time period of the 1930s. It was always hmm. something else that was starting the wars. Um, so I, obviously China is very concerned about its oil access. Uh, it became an oil importer in 1993. Since then, it's taken steps to try to ensure that it can buy oil and that it can get it home. Mm -hmm. So that includes things like it's national, like you were mentioning, it's national oil companies investing in foreign oil projects. Uh, it's included loans for oil to places like Venezuela. Uh, new oil transportation infrastructure, pipelines through Myanmar, pipeline from Russia. Uh, and including building up its navy um, yeah. so that it has more, um, more of a role in global sea lanes. That being said, none of this actually constitutes seizing foreign oil resources mm -hmm. or even getting particularly close to that. Mm -hmm. um, and moving forward, I don't anticipate that we'll see a variation from the historic record. It's still really inefficient to try to conquer oil, even if you're China. Right. And if you conquer oil resources that are far from home, how do you get them home? Right. So it seems like a very, very unlikely strategy. And I, again, revert to this World War II Iraq invasion of Kuwait model, which says if China's desperate and its back is against the wall and it feels like it has no other choice and it's exhausted all other options, right. then maybe it will fight for oil resources. Right. But, um, but that's a pretty um, far end of the spectrum scenario. And so the other thing that, that is interesting to think about for the future is changing technology, of course. You know, oil is a strategically important commodity because of, you know, the internal combustion engine. And if, we, if technology means that we're moving away from that, more battery-powered cars, you know, a clean energy economy, uh, then, you know, that changes the dynamic as well. Well, I wish it did. Um, okay, tell me. <laughs> so the, so I, I think energy transition is great. Let's go for it. Um, yeah. Lots of good reasons to do that. Um, but the whole finding in my book is that countries never fought major conflicts for oil. Right. So if oil becomes less valuable, if prices go down, if we have an energy transition, that won't change. Mm -hmm. um, there won't be a peace dividend because conflicts weren't about oil to begin with. Right, right. So... Lots of reasons to pursue an energy transition. Unfortunately, stopping oil wars isn't one of them. But then again, <laughs> because we don't we need don't to have, stop oil wars because, because they didn't we, we, don't have, we didn't have any oil wars. Okay, uh, very interesting. Um, uh, oh, Dr. Meyerding, where, where can people find out more about your work and, and get the book? Uh, so you can get the book on um, any bookseller. Um, okay. I encourage you to try your independence. Um, <laughs> also on the Cornell University Press website. Uh, I am on Twitter at E Meyerding. So I'll spell that out. E-M-E-I-E-R-D-I-N-G. Um, that's the, the best place to get information on oil and gas related territorial disputes. And, and by the way, that, that's where... I connected with you. I saw your tweets about a, a discounted price on the book. So I picked it up. It was good. Uh, I'd encourage everybody to, to take a read and, and really give some 
some deep thought to this. It, it's really an interesting thesis, and, and uh, I think this was a great conversation. Thanks for being with us. Thanks. It was great to be here.